Hello and welcome. My name is Brian and you're listening to Friends and Music with me, Brian Doherty. A podcast about all things music for those who are obsessed by it. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on this show, please feel free to get in touch. Also, I encourage you to subscribe to my podcast on your chosen platform. Most importantly, thank you for listening. My guest today is Gurf Morlix. Gurf is an Austin, Texas-based guitar player, composer, and record producer who's worked with Warren Zevon, Lucinda Williams, Blaze Foley, and Michael Penn, among many others. In this episode, Gurf tells us about his upbringing in Buffalo, New York, and how his fateful decision one day to choose the city of Austin over the city of Boston led him down the vast roadway of the music industry as a top guitarist and record producer. Also, we chat about his love of music, but in particular, how he feels about the perfect blend of country and rock. Gurf also recounts his days with Lucinda Williams and how he produced her records, as well as how the band got the keeper take of the song Change the Locks. Very interesting story. It was a great pleasure to speak with Gurf, and it was my honor to have him as a guest on my show. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Gurf. How are you? Hi, Brian. How's it going? I'm doing pretty good, but I guess it's hotter where you are as opposed to New York where I am. It's about 90 degrees where I am. Well, you know, it's it's over 100, or it will be over 100 here this afternoon, but uh, somehow it's different. And, uh, you know, like 90 degrees in New York is somehow comparable to 100 in Texas. Yeah, there you go. I hear you. Somehow it's a different scale. and I, I don't understand it, but I I'm very well versed in the weather of both places, and I know what it feels like. There you go. Gurf, can you introduce yourself to us? Hey, I'm Gurf Morlix. And what is it, <laughs> what is it that you do? Uh, oh, you know, um, I write songs, and I record them, and I sing them in front of people when, uh, when it's safe to do so. And, uh, and I've been a musician all my life, you know, which was probably 1960 five or six my first band nice we were called we were called the plague (laughs) i figure we were either 55 years ahead of our time or about 45 years behind our time i I was just gonna say maybe you guys should reunite (laughs) (laughs) no it's uh these are strange times for sure yes i i've been I've been doing some research when I can on, I've been a big fan of your work and you and I spoke last week and I admitted that there's a lot of what, there's a lot of music in the, there's a lot of music period that I'm not familiar with, but there's also a lot, a lot of your work that I'm not familiar with, even though I have been a fan. I have, I did read though that you're not originally from Austin and that you're originally from the East Coast. Do you want to tell us about the early years? Sure. I grew up in a suburb of Buffalo, New York, and uh, uh, it was a great place to grow up, great place to be a kid. I, I wish I had gone to New York City when I was about 15 to complete my education, but uh, I didn't get to New York City till I was probably 30. Um, but I kind of ran out of musical opportunities and in western new york and uh ended up moving to austin when i was 24 and it was a perfect move austin was just on fire the live music capital of the world and uh within about a week i was in a band making great money and and it was warm and it was uh things were cheap rent was like 53 dollars you know that's great (laughs) it was amazing (laughs) when i think of austin i mean i i really Austin got on my radar like in the nineties as like a hot place to live a happening place. But what, why Austin at that, at that point, was it always known to be, was it like comparable to a Nashville or a Los Angeles or. Yeah. In it's, in it's way, I wanted to play rock and roll and country music. Right. And there wasn't anybody in Buffalo area that was into both of those at the same time. And, uh, yeah, so I kind of ran out of opportunities, and, and I had a drummer friend that I was hanging out with, and uh, and he wanted to do the same thing. And he went to see Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen. Mm. He went up and talked to Commander Cody at the end of the night. 
said, where should we go? We want to play country and rock and roll. And Cody said, Austin or Boston. Nice. Boston was cold, so Austin was the choice. And it it could not have worked out better. Um, I'm I'm remembering seeing Commander Cody for the first time on Don Kirshner's rock concert. Yeah, I remember. You ever watch that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Religiously. And that was my that was my introduction to music. I was a I was a child, but I was glued Saturday night at eight thirty in New York. I was whoever was, was on. It was it was my education. There was some really great stuff on there in between a bunch of crap, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I think I just took it all in. I was I, I was I was a blank slate, but I remember Commander Cody, and that was you know it's kind of um, hearing con- country music, I guess, or. You know, yeah, rock, well, they, they were rock, doing, you know, they were doing exactly what I wanted to do at that time, and uh, so we we followed his advice, and uh, and Austin was just on fire at the time. He was just just beginning to be the live music capital of the world, and uh, and it was perfect. So this is a conscious decision. You're you made a conscious decision to to get into the music business or to or oh, to yeah. ramp it up. So yeah, tell go go back a little bit. How do you how do you get into country music? Do you have a family that's musical? Do you do you have friends that t- turn you on to different kinds of music? Uh, well, you know, I was I was just always into music, and I you know I can remember seeing Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show when I was four, probably, and uh, and just going and he's holding a guitar, and I'm going, that's what I want to do, you know, and uh, and then when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan Show that Sunday night in early 63. And then it was all over. That's, that's what I was going to do. And the next day in school, we started bands and we, we chose our band members and we chose our band name and we started combing our hair down over our foreheads. And it was a, it was a revolution. And, uh, did you guys have have bass players? Were there there Uh, guys willing to play bass? Uh, you would, you would be relegated to bass, you know, (laughs) If you uh, if your if your dad gave you enough money to buy a bass amp, you could yeah. be in a band. Uh. <laughs> uh, if your dad had a van, you could be in a band. You know, yeah. Uh, in in lots of cases, we didn't um, even get guitars or anything for a year, but we had the band name. Right. Picked. Yeah. yeah. We we were a gang. You know, we'd hang yeah. out after school and, uh, uh, and but then somehow I managed to have some talent and perseverance and stay at it and then i started you know making a living when i was in high school playing playing and playing in biker bars and right. you know going to school at eight o'clock in the morning and being in biker bars till four in the morning you know where does the country music part come in you describe yourself as part rock part part country well it's i think really it's more part rock part blues part roots part sure. everything that i liked but um in about 1974, uh, I discovered Hank Williams. And Hank Williams is, is in the top echelon for me. It's, it's the, right. For me, it's Dylan and Hank Williams and Muddy Waters and the Beatles. And, and then there's everybody else. And right. when I, I found out how, how good Hank Williams was, I, then I all of a sudden through that, I started playing pedal steel guitar. And then I started... Um, listening to all the country music I'd, I could find. And suddenly there was Merle Haggard and George Jones and, and Lefty Frizzell and Roy Acuff and, and all of that amazing stuff. And uh, so I just, I just dove deep in. Right. Meanwhile, still wanting to play rock and roll. Um, sorry, I was a bit, if, if you heard some pops there, I was a bit distracted. I was okay. making making sure that my side of the audio was recording. That would that would be bad. <laughs> I hear you. I heard your side. <laughs> um, I I wanted to talk about. I mean, I've I've got a lot that I want to talk about. But um, tell us more about Austin in in the early days. And who are you meeting? Who are you playing with? Are you developing a network of musicians and? Do you have your eyes set on your sights set on something else beyond it, and so on? And and what what are your first tours and of that nature? 
Well, you know, I, I moved down here and like I said, I got in a band right away and was making a living. But all of a sudden I realized people down here were writing their own songs. So, you know, it, it was early 75 when I moved to Austin. And, and so here's Willie Nelson and here's Jerry Jeff Walker and here's uh, B.W. Stevenson and Steve Fromholtz and, and Doug right. Song. All these people are in Austin and, and they're songwriters. And so then I started playing with songwriters and, and really enjoying playing original music. It was all, it was all cover band stuff before then, you know? And, uh, and then some of those songwriters turned out to be pretty good. And, uh, and I ended up, uh, I worked with a guy named Blaze Foley, um, around Austin and Houston for a while. We were kind of going back and forth between Austin and Houston. And, uh, and then I ended up running out of opportunities in Texas in the mm -hmm. late 70s. In, uh, in 1981, I moved to Los Angeles because I, I, I wanted to be touring nationally. And I was playing the clubs in Houston and Austin, but I wanted to, wanted to go on tour with, with okay. someone with, with a record deal. And, and so I moved to Los Angeles and kicked around there for a couple of years. And then finally, I, I met Lucinda Williams, and we started a band. and. Uh, and then suddenly she got a record deal and uh, said, who's going to produce? I said, well, pff, I'll produce it. And so I did. And then we started touring and that's what I was looking to do. Had you produced anything before that? Yeah, I was always the guy with the tape recorder. Mm -hmm. I, I always could figure out how to, where to put the mics and where to, where to set the amps and the drums and make it sound as, as good as I could. And uh, so I always had that uh, ability. Uh, and then when I, when we got the deal and then I was going to produce it and then I just had to slowly pull my foot out of my mouth and, uh, and, and do it. And it turned out to be a great album that was really well received. I'll say. And, and so here. then that made lots more work. And that just right. kind of was, was the start of me being a record producer. I want to circle back to Lucinda, but once I was because at this point I'm cognizant of who Lucinda, who Lucinda Williams is, and and I was really enjoying that record, constantly playing it, and um, it's a really good record. Did do things get easier after that? After the record's over and done, as your name, are, are you accepted into circles, or the gates open, the doors open for for you in the business? Uh, yeah, I got a lot more work um, as a producer then. Uh, and then I did some, some big bus tours. I, I toured with, uh, Michael Penn and I toured with Warren Zevon and, uh, and we're doing bus tours with Lucinda and, uh, right. and then it kind of all just sort of broke down. It, it became not fun and I had, I had to bail on the Lucinda gig. It's just, it wasn't worth what I was going through. Uh, the music was great. The band was great, but I just, I wasn't having a good time. So right. I bailed and, and then I, just when I put you mean, a, you mean sleeping on a bus is not fun. Sleeping, sleeping on a bus just makes it barely doable. It's, <laughs> you, you know, like for about three or four days, the first three or four days, it's It's glamorous. And yeah. then it's like, I don't want to crawl into that. Tin tin <laughs> and, I tell, um, I, I tell a story of, um, of touring where me and a bass player asked the band to just rent us a Lincoln town car. And I've then, done then we'd meet you at the gig. Everybody else was on the bus and <laughs> yeah, that, that's the best way we, we stopped we, we had, we had leisurely lunches. We, you know, yeah, <laughs> you can, you can stretch out and sleep in a Lincoln town. <laughs> I've, I've rented those on my solo tours. And yeah. That's pretty darn comfortable until you get to a city like San Francisco or New York or something yeah. and the LA and the cars are about four inches from you on each side. Exactly. Um, I want to talk about the Lucinda record. Is that okay? Sure. I, among other things, I've noticed that there is, there's almost this perfect blend of rock and country on that record. Is, was that, was that a, um, was that a concerted, you know, was that, did that just happen, unfold the way it was, or were you guys going for that? Those were my sensibilities. That's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I'd say for that, that first Lucinda record that I did, I was probably more influenced by like Jackson Brown than anyone yeah. else. 
album. He was he was doing that before we were, I think, sort of writing really good songs and then having a band that could rock. And, and so that's kind of what I was going for. It just it just made total sense to me. Right. Were Were there ever moments where you were felt like you were overstepping the boundaries of like maybe it's too much rock? Or do you uh, ever have discussions with 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 Lucinda? You know. Dial, dial, more more country, less rock, and so on. No, oh, she she loved it, and uh, that band was so good. When it was uh, me and Doctor John Chambody on bass and Donald Lilly on drums, and we were like the Who with Lucinda in front of us. I mean that yeah. that band was that was one of the best bands in the world at the time. Yes, I'll say, yeah. The live gigs, I don't think there are any tapes of those live gigs, but they were incredible. That band was so good. I saw you guys live at the bottom line in, I think, 1991. With the band? With the band, yeah. And yeah. I had, had a slice of pizza with your drummer, Donald. Oh, okay. He <laughs> and I think JD, oh. JD was playing bass. That's, a, that's how I knew Yeah, right. Him. Yeah. Um, uh, I, remember, I remember those gigs. The bottom line was great. I, I missed the bottom line. That's a great, great venue. Yeah. There's a simplicity of that album as well when you're producing it are you going for that are you leaving you know do you end up muting parts editing things out later or is what you is what you hear what you played live yeah pretty much um i'm, I'm not a guy that likes a lot of options and i uh, my brain is wired pretty simply i don't want to hear a lot of stuff going on uh, unless the song calls for a rock squall or something but um, but I just, I, I tend to like space. Yeah. And th those were just, the, that was pretty much the way I heard it in my head. And then we just kind of put that down. I'm thinking of the song Abandon. Oh yeah. I forgot about that song. I mean, if, if you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's quarterly, there's not much change going on, especially in, in, in the intro, you provide this great, signature riff yeah yeah if, if that were not there you you probably hear an acoustic guitar strumming eighth notes on one on one chord <laughs> yeah so what i'm trying to get at and is if you could elaborate like it's so brilliant and often i i don't want to speak for other musicians but i i have the habit of dismissing things dismissing great musical moments as and eh, that's that's really easy. Anybody could do that. And then when I circle back to it, I realize, holy shit, I could not do that. <laughs> so can you speak to that? Can you? Well, it's more? just, it's just my sensibilities. And, uh, you know, I like to, I like to turn the amp way up and the guitar up and, <clears throat> and hit a chord and just let it ring. I want to hear what it does after the pick leaves the strings. You know, that's the interesting part for me. And, uh, so I like the space and then you just want a little bit of, movement in there to keep it interesting it's not just decaying it's it's evolving it's it's like a little vine growing through the room and i just i just like that sound you don't you don't play a lot of notes i'm not able to play a lot of notes that's a, oh come on <laughs> you mean, a, no that's, musically or technically I, i'm 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 shredding in all those songs that's that's everything i got you know but uh, but it seems to work. People seem to like it, and, uh, and I like it. It's just like I said; it's the way my brain is wired. It's the perfect ma marriage of your sensibility, it seems, as a player, and for, for the music. But in, in a song like "Abandon," are you free? You know, because that that riff is that riff is part of the composition. Yeah. So, is there ever discussion with the artist, whether it's Lucinda or others, about how much you can? contribute and if it's part of the songwriting or not or is that a fair well, question to ask that's a fair question and uh there was never any limitation placed on me or anything i could have i could have played every note i knew but um but at the same time you come up with a a, a lick like passionate kisses or something yeah. and uh, now that's part of the song yeah that's, that is that's what well, it's but i don't get songwriting credit on that's what I'm, 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 I'm rooting for you. I'm in your corner. I mean, even um, I just want to see you so bad. 
your riffs provide, I, I just keep, they're not only fantastic and fit the song so wonderfully, but if they weren't there, yeah, songs, the songs would be a lot different. Well, that's just the way it is. You know, you just, you don't get the songwriting credit for that unless right. you wrote the song itself. Does that, because I'd like to stay here for a moment, but later we can, I'd like to talk about your motivation as a songwriter. And if any of these moments, you know, kind of like spark off in your brain, like, okay, I'm going to log this in because as I'm writing my own songs, I want to do X, Y, or Z. I'm not sure I understand. I'm saying like, so here you are, you're, you're collaborating with an artist, you're in a band, you're providing signature riffs that are ident that, that make the song identifiable. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, does that, do you, do you, are you aware of it at the time? And are you, are you bringing that into your own songwriting when you're not, when you're not in a band? Yeah, hopefully I, well, hopefully I do that with my music. You know? I mean, yeah. that's the goal is uh, all I'm doing is trying to come up with the part that makes the song as, as great as it can be. You know? how, did, how did you guys form the band? Because that, I could say the same we just talked about your playing. I, I could say, say the same thing, in my opinion, about Donald's drumming. There's so wow. many moments where anybody else, including myself, because I'm a drummer, <laughs> but I would, I would have a tendency to fill, to add another hi-hat splash or play too uh, much. But he's, his delivery is friggin' perfect. He was an amazing musician. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there's, there's a lot of drummers out there who I don't consider musicians. You know, they, they can keep time maybe and they can bash around but Can we name he some was names the, right now <laughs> yeah he was so <laughs> musical and he inspired me you know because he, it was again it was his um a, a total of everything that he had really liked you know and so he he was into uh john bonham you know yeah it was or like i said it was we were like the who sometimes playing rock and roll songs you know and uh and I knew that that I could hit a chord and just hold it, and Donald would play the exact right thing to answer it. You know, yes. it was it was magical while it lasted. That's why. Um, would you say that that's why we like to play live music, where as opposed to layering things in the studio or you know, yeah, well, I like that virtually. too. Yeah, I, I like that too. That's that's mostly what I do these days. But uh, there's just something to be said about being in a room with a bunch of people who are digging what you're doing and, and, and who, put, who put the band together? It just kind of fell together. Um, originally I was the bass player and there was a, it was a while. Pete Anderson was involved for a little while. He was going to produce Lucinda. He had at one point Lucinda playing electric guitar and me playing acoustic guitar and it was, there was some experiment going on, but we just had these little gigs in Hollywood, and uh, and it, it eventually just sort of gelled down to Chambodi and me and Donald and Lucinda, and nice. that's just what worked. What a great combo! It was amazing. Do you can you tell us about the actual sessions? It, were they quick? Were you doing a couple songs a day? Were you were you rehearsing? Was there a lot of pre-production or what, what, what was the approach? Well, we didn't have much money. We got this record deal from Rough Trade. And uh, uh, so I think we had like a week. Maybe it was two weeks. It was a week or two weeks. Um, uh, I, I, I probably have that written down somewhere, but I, it was either one week or two week, two weeks. And so we, you know, we did a little couple of days of rehearsal and then we just went in and just kind of banged it out live. And then once in a while we'd have to re-sing a vocal or something, but uh, uh, there was no time to agonize over it Beautiful, um, because we were, we had a, we had a finite amount of money and a finite amount of time and it, it came out really good. And then after that, like the next, next record, we had like $150,000 to spend, you know, versus the 12,000 we had on the, <laughs> on the, and that just, opened up a host of problems and yeah. <laughs> you know, how am I going to spend this money? <laughs> um, are we I told the, I, I told the A&R guy one point, he, he said, uh, 
well, your, your budget's 150000 And I said, well, I could make this record for 15000 And he said, don't say that. Don't let anyone hear you say that. It'll ruin it for all of us. <laughs> so I had to figure out how to spend $150,000. That's too much. Insane. It Did it, did it, well, it sounds like it changed your experience, but did it sour any moments where it, was it, uh, did it, did it pull the plug on certain areas or? Well, the music was still pure mm-hmm. uh, and the band was still great, but it just, uh, I, I didn't like looking for ways to waste money. Right. And those days are pretty much gone now. There's a, there's a few records being made that have big budgets, but uh, you, can luckily, always waste, you can always waste more money by like um, writing songs in the studio. On studio <laughs> time. <laughs> See, I didn't think about that. We were <laughs> You know, we were having catering and a guitar tech in the studio and a, right. bringing in a guy with 50 snare drums to audition. Yeah. Oh, uh, my Lord. Um, tell, me about, tell me about the drum sound on, uh, that you got with Donald on, on that first record. Well, that was a tiny room. Um, I'm not sure what the... Donald was the only thing live in that room. My amp was in a... In a booth and uh lucinda was in a vocal booth and the bass player was in the control room uh but that room was really tiny and and probably fairly dead so there's probably a little bit of digital reverb on there yeah but donald just knew exactly how to hit the drums and he knew how to tune his drums and like i've never worked with a better musician he was amazing just just what he did again we did a we did a track of um, change the locks, mm-hmm. and we were uh, something happened. and We were having some trouble with it, and then all of a sudden there was like this bickering between Donald. He starts, and, he starts with that fill. That song starts with the fill. Yeah, yeah. Donald was great at that, but yeah. we 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 hadn't gotten the take yet. We cut it two or three times and. Finally, Donald got mad, and he he goes in there and he puts the phones on, and he said, "All right, everybody, here we go." And and he threw his phones off, and he mm-hmm. counted the song and played. He knew the song. He wasn't hearing anybody else. Okay. And he he got done with the song. We we're just playing along with him, and he threw his sticks down. And he goes, "God damn it, that's the take!" And he stormed out of the room into the into the control room, and that was the take. That was it for Change the Locks? An, an amazing performance. <laughs> he played the song without hearing anybody else. That is a, an amazing story, yeah. Yeah. Gosh. What, and, and what a great song, too. Yeah, it's a really great song. Are we hearing anything on that record that you remember as like a second take or first take? or? I don't remember. Um, yeah. We probably never did more than three takes of anything, you know, and we... I remember redoing a vocal or two. Are are you the other singer on that record? Yeah, yeah. So you're. By the way, you're an amazing singer. Thank you. And and your your harmonies are uh, we have a habit of weaving. You you don't you don't just parallel. You you weave. Yeah. Can you, can you talk? Can can you talk about that a little bit if you want? Well, yeah, sure. Harmony, harmony singing is what I is what I've been doing the longest. I remember being able to sing harmonies when I was like five or six or something, and right. I remember my mom was kind of just taken aback by the fact that I could do that. And uh, and then in, a, in the one of my early bands, I was just the harmony singer. Okay, I needed someone to sing, and so I just kind of stood there and sang harmonies and. Uh, and then I just put some thought into it. It's like, I don't want to just be predictable and do a linear thing. Just, just follow the melody up and down. It's like, I want to, I want it to come in here and there and be interesting. And sometimes it's one note straight across, you know, it's just, I'm just looking for the right part. And if you look hard enough and, and you're smart enough, you might find it. They are exactly as you described. Do you, do you- did you do you ever play them on guitar first to to see if they work or are you no. singing singing them now? No, I hear them in my head. Usually, yeah. the first or second time I hear the song. Also, with the 
the guitar licks too. It's like if Lucinda would play the song and and uh, once, and I would listen, and then she'd play it again, and I would play something along with her. And more often than not, that would become the signature lick. That, that that's amazing. I, I I don't think I can say that. I can't. I can't. I I can't say that I've heard that story often, where it's kind of just gels right away, right? It just made sense to me. It's just common sense. Some of the um, a lot of a lot of your harmonies are very close, like they're very um, you know, they they can get cl close and kind of tucked in, and and um, I don't know. I, I I feel like if you're if you're like me and you're just singing along to a track and you want to take take the harmony, I always I was again I discovered that it's far more difficult to actually execute it. Than, than it sounds. It sounds like it's so so easy and comes off lightly. <laughs> no, it, it takes some thought, you know, or, yeah. or some, some years of practice. Yeah. It just it comes fairly easy to me. I just hear them. I'm, if I'm on stage and there's no microphone, I'm singing harmonies along with the with the vocal anyhow. So that's, I just, that's what I do. I, that's what I hear. Right. You mentioned writing something down earlier. Do you write, do you document sessions and yeah road trips um, and stuff this yeah i you know probably somewhere i have a list of every gig i ever played you know nice. <laughs> Some point. but but these days in you know since i put the studio in my house which was probably 1999 i guess um i write down all the settings and it doesn't take a minute or two uh you know i write down where all the eq settings are on things and what microphone and how many inches from an amp it was and and uh then if i decide you know like a month later i, I want to replace that note or something i can just go in there and i can set it back up i know what amp i know what guitar i know what pickup i was on right and and i and it just works so nice. i can i can replace things so that's so i so i've been taking notes so you've been documenting things. Do you do you ever do you ever? Um, I mean, do you write any prose? Do you write any stories about your time on you know playing with an artist or? You know, there's there's been a few people here and there that have said you should write a book, and it's like it's it's the last thing I really think I want to do. But uh, you know, I've been around so long and I've seen so much, and uh, every once in a while I'll tell some story and to someone and they'll say man that's great you should write that down so, <laughs> so i have been yeah uh, in your I've songs been, perhaps right well yeah but i've i've been i've been writing you know i probably 10 or 15 stories that are things that that somehow i just want to remember not with any desire to make a book and everybody makes a book you know right i, I didn't really another one of those guys you yeah. know um but i i've been writing just it's good to have that stuff sounds like it's cathartic you can get it out yeah yeah it's it's a good thing to do and also it's a good thing and i can't do this now but it's a good thing to like record your elders telling yes. their life story you know and, and I, i've told people that over the years all the time but i never did it i never had the opportunity now i, I regret it that's it that's a great point is there someone you can name that you've regretted not documenting somebody that you've worked with or close to you or what do you mean documenting in this in this setting you're you're you mentioned um how helpful it is to our descendants to have a recording of right of our story of a, a family history or professional history is there somebody that you feel like that you you wish you could have gotten them on tape or heard well, more might... of their story or my grandparents, you know, they, my great grandparents grew up in Germany, in the Kaiser Wilhelm era, you know, and 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 it was just never talked about, and you know, Hitler wasn't talked about, and I wish I could have interviewed them on, on what that was like, and and they they got away before I could. Right. Yeah, I think I bet you a lot of people feel that way too about their grandparents. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just I'm telling everybody just you know get those stories, get the old people on tape or video before they go. It's gone after they're gone. You know, there's a lot you'll wish you knew and you didn't. Of course. 
just can can I ask a, maybe one or two more questions about Lucinda, about your work with mm -hmm. Lucinda? Um, are you writing at any point? Do you do you guys decide to be songwriting partners? Really, the when we were not on tour, the last thing I wanted to do was hang out with her and try to write a song. Gotcha. Yeah, I hear you. Are you writing songs on your own when you're on the road with her? Are you in your uh, hotel room or whatever? Not really. I wasn't concentrating on writing at that point, although I've been writing, you know, since I was 18 or something, but uh, um, it's really only been the last 10 or 20 years that I've kind of put any effort into that. And, uh, and now I write all the time, whenever I can. And I, I've written about, probably nine songs since the pandemic wow. started. You know? So that's just, I, they, they keep coming out. And luckily I got the studio here uh, that I can, I can record them. Are you, are you pro tools guy or logic? Or neither? <laughs> no, no <laughs> tape, no, com no computers in my studio. Really? Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Record on a, a Lisa's hard disk recorder. And uh, I like press and record and stop and play and, and uh, I don't like looking at a screen. I've done records with Pro Tools, you know, a bunch right. of times with an engineer. Basically, I and when I do that, I take full advantage of the technology. But um, I never really felt like I had the time to go back to school. For I figured it would take me like three months to learn. Probably, yeah, or maybe not. So I, yeah, me well, probably because I'm a little on the thick side sometimes, and so uh, so I never did it and. Like now I could do it, but now I don't want to. All I, you know, all I got to do is uh, have the the gear that I have last for however long I last, and, and it right. you know, like I'm, it's it's working. I just I just want it to stay working. Nice, and I love the sounds. What's the format that it saves? It does it save on like like discs? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I record to the hard disk recorder and then I dump it to a, a Lisa's, um, uh, master link and, and burn a disc. Got it. Nice. Yeah. Do, you, do you find yourself working virtually with friends, colleagues, anybody emailing you, mean, you stuff? Yeah. Um, to? although I don't get many requests to play on anything and that's, and I would do that, but I, uh, I just don't. I think people people are afraid to ask. Maybe you know. I'll a I'll ask you. <laughs> like if I don't want to do it, I'll tell you. You know, but um, but I have done some of that. You know, people will send a file. You know, Ray Wiley Hubbard sent me. He wanted me to play bass on something a few well, a month or so ago, and he he wants me to sing on something right now, and and so you know, I I have the technology to make that happen, and so I do. Is it something that you're interested in or do you have, you don't have a feeling about it one way or the other? Uh, it's something I can do and it's something I enjoy. Uh, I, as long as I like the music, that's, that's the bottom line. That's, that's the way it was always for, as far as me producing other people. It was like lots of people would ask me and I'd turn down three quarters of them right. uh, because if I didn't fall in love with the music or the, or the project somehow, then, then I couldn't just, sit there every day going oh. right seems as some 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 people have the ability uh, the ability to just put on a professional hat and 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 get through it you know no, no matter what right yeah uh, i feel like music music is a personal music is yeah, personal no, to I, a lot of people i'm i'm looking to make a piece of art every time i produce a record for someone or make my own right. and uh, you know my role as a producer is to is to make the best possible album that that i can for the for the artist that both the artist and i are satisfied with right and so we both have to love it and and if if i don't love the music from the get-go then it's just going to be miserable so so i've always turned down more than i've taken nice and now i don't get asked much anymore <laughs> at all and that's okay <laughs> I'm, I'm doing fine um i also admitted to you last week that this is the first time I'm hearing Blaze Foley, and um, what a what a pleasure! Where Boy, you been? I I know exactly. Well, this is like somebody 
discovering, you know, the honeymooners. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody go, wait, yeah. wait a second. I can go back and watch all of this. It's like a treasure trove. So it's, I guess it's good. Where, where have I, I don't know where I've been. I've been, I feel like I've been listening to music a lot, but I mean, th- throughout the years, but I always find these swaths of genres and artists that I knew nothing about. And I'm the first to roll up my sleeves and want to get in, but tell that song clay pigeons was killing me. Absolutely. Yeah. killing me. Did, it's an amazing song. Was there, is there anything about, I mean, were you working with him? I don't know. Well, t- tell us more about him and, and your work with him, I guess is what I mean to say. Yeah. I met him in Austin in 76 or 77. And, uh, you know, he was a he was a big, long-haired, hippie cowboy guy, and he was homeless pretty much the whole time I knew him. And so he came up to me. Uh, I was playing a gig at the Hole in the Wall in Austin, and he came up to me in between songs, and he had this guitar case with him, and he wanted to show me the guitar. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, well, you know, we're, we're playing a set here, you know. <laughs> Maybe we could do this on a break. And I was just thinking, who is this guy? And... And actually, he wanted to sell me that guitar. And actually, it wasn't his guitar. He had borrowed it. Um, And he ended up, I didn't buy it, but I know know at least three people that did buy it, and none of them ever got it. Uh, Bit of a scam. But uh, I went over and I talked to him on the break, and I found out that I liked him. He was funny and smart. And and then he had a gig coming up. Uh, It was his first gig ever in Austin. He wanted to know if I'd come to it. And so I... Me and some friends went, and it was a happy hour, and it was in a disco in 1977 or 6 or 7. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was great. He wrote these great songs, and I just I fell in love with the whole thing, you know, and he was completely unique. He was not like any other songwriter I'd known. He was telling stories and passing around pictures of the people in the songs, and it was this kind of show-and-tell thing, and I was just just fell madly in love with his music. And so then we hit it off, and of course he didn't have a place to live, so he started living on my couch. And, and you know, he was a he was a drunk and a fuck up, and a he just. But he was my best friend for right. many, you know. And, and so he put up with some of that stuff, and uh, because he was lovable in his drunk, fucked up way. How do you spend time together? Are you are you are you playing are you playing music are you are you plotting you know the next gig? What are what are the what do you mean like? What, are, what do you mean together? Well, no, I meant I meant like what if he's if he's living on your couch? Oh, I'm assuming oh. you're seeing you're seeing a lot of him at that point. Are you guys like in a band together, or is or is he uh, floating yeah. from couch to couch? Or we we both kind of moved down to Houston. There was money in the clubs in Houston in the late seventies, and so we went down there. And uh, I got a little apartment there. I was kind of going back and forth between Austin and, and Houston. Uh, Austin was a great place to live, but there was more money to be made in Houston. And so Blaze would come with me. He'd live with me on my couch wherever I was, and I started getting him some gigs in Houston. And so we would uh, play the gigs and stay up late drinking and get up the next day and be sober and, and have lunch. And then we go thrift store shopping and just, just going around. We used to go to the Houston zoo all the time and look at the orangutans and, uh, and uh, we just, we had a great time and then we'd, we'd have another gig the next night or if we didn't, we'd be at that bar anyhow. Right. It was a, it was Good a time. Times. Yeah. And then after a while, Blaze kind of started um, drinking more, and there were some drugs involved, and uh, he started kind of sliding downhill. And, and at that point, I decided to leave and move to Los Angeles and, uh, and left Blaze in Texas. And after that, he kind of started this long, slow downhill slide into alcoholism and homelessness. And, and he ended up uh, getting murdered in 1989. And, I read. Oh my God, it's yeah. horrible. Well, he was. Um, he had this really strong um, code of honor that he lived by, and this strong sense of justice. And he wouldn't let anyone mistreat any friends of his. He was especially protective of older people and and children. Mm-hmm. 
and he was he had this old man who was a drinking buddy of his and and uh, the old man had a son who was a junkie and he was beating up his father and stealing his social security checks and cashing them and using the money for heroin and blaze just wasn't going to let that happen and uh, and finally the kid came home one time and blaze was sitting up drinking with the old man and he went and got a rifle and shot blaze and, mm. and that was that didn't didn't have to happen but it you know like i knew i'd get that call someday yeah i'm sorry uh, i'm I, sorry to hear I, yeah well it was sad uh, didn't have to happen but in a way it did you know and some people make it through that that sort of a period and some just don't and, uh, I miss what he might have done. He never got to tour. Yeah. He never got to go to Europe, you know. He he only played in the clubs in whatever city he was hanging out in, you know. You have a solo record that's um, dedicated to plays, right? Yeah, ever since he was murdered, I wanted to do that. And it took me a long time. Um, There's a... There's a documentary film about Blaze called uh, Blaze Foley Duct Tape Messiah. I was going to ask you about duct tape because I'm looking at the it, cover right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Garth. Go ahead. Well, I was, was going to say um, Kevin Triplett, a friend of mine from Austin, made that movie. And he spent 11 or 12 years making it. Mm-hmm. And I sort of watched it coming into focus. And uh, uh, at one point, I realized it was getting close to being done. And I thought, well, it's and, and I realized it was going to be really good, so I thought, well, this is now's the time for me to make my album of Blaze songs, and I'll release it at the same time the film comes out, and we'll tour together, which we did in 2012, I guess, or 2011. Okay. Uh, and uh, we would show the film, and then I would afterwards I'd play a set of Blaze songs, and and we did that for more than a year, basically, and it was great. It made me feel really good, and it, I sort of put my own records on hold just to do that. You know, it was, it was something I felt the need to do. Where does the number one thirteen? I mean, you know, you're referring to blaze Foley's 113th wet dream, yeah, which is a song of blazes. And, uh, Bob Dylan had a song called Bob Dylan's 115th dream. So it was a, it was a play on that. Gotcha. And, and I love that song. It's, it's, yeah. It's 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 the only song I know that uh, is written about a nocturnal emission. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I thought that would be a good title for the album. Because I was thinking of like there's like a poison song or, or a rat song about <laughs> nocturnal emissions, but I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, there there may be. It's the only one I'm aware of. But but you know, like a, a CD is small, and you got to you got to have your name on the cover and then you got to have some sort of image and then you got to have the name of the album. And then I thought, well, since it's not my songs, I got to have a third thing on there that explains that it's Blaze's songs. And I thought if I use that title, uh, everyone will understand. And uh, looking back, I think I may have been able to find a better title for that record and a better way to deal with it. Cause what I think it, I think it through. I don't know, but I, I okay. think that, that title threw some people. Okay. And for some reason, that album sold less than most of my other ones, and like by far. And I don't know why that was because it's one of the best ones. I think you know yeah. those songs are great. Where did the where? So was it his fascination with duct tape, or was <laughs> duct tape just a useful, you know, material? Well, of course, it's a useful <laughs> material, but um, we're living. Friend, in, I'd say. We were living in Houston back in like 78 and that movie um, Urban Cowboy came out with John Travolta riding the mechanical bull and suddenly all these people are coming into the Houston clubs with their Western wear on their, they, it was a craze, you know, so they'd gone to, they went to Western wear shops and they were coming in with silver collar tips and silver boot tips and, you know, stuff that they'd paid hundreds of dollars for and, and Blaze just thought it was absurd, and he decided duct tape looks just as good as a silver boot tip, you know. So he started decorating himself with with duct tape, pretending it was silver, and it just kind of kind of took off from there. 
it was a statement. It's the um, it's the out for those who are look when you see the album, you'll see the duct tape is uh, the graphics aren't duct tape, right? Yeah, well, Blaze. I had a Nike endorsement in L.A. one time. Blaze, came, they were giving me free sneakers, and Blaze came out there to visit me, and uh, I took Wait, him. You, you had a Nike endorsement? Yeah, with fun. a band band in L.A. that I was in had a Nike endorsement, and so. Um, they were giving us free free shoes and gear and stuff. And so I, I took Blaze to the Nike headquarters in L.A. And, and he only had cowboy boots. He never had more than one pair of shoes in his life, you know. He, he cut out uh, a Nike swoosh from duct tape and put them on his cowboy boots and tried tried it. to beg a pair of them. And they didn't go for it, but they, they laughed at the, at the duct tape swoosh. So that's kind of what the what the cover is. That's that's hysterical. Um, I did I did listen to that album and it, and it's amazing and I would I would recommend it. And if you're if you're like I am, who's just learning about some of about Blaze and other artists, you've got a lot to look forward to. Um, yeah, it's really good. You My mentioned, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would I would highly recommend it. You mentioned earlier yeah. this kind of Jackson Brown, you know, rock meets country, Jackson Brown kind of philosophy or, you know, you thought you guys could have a band like that. And um, I just happened to be listening to Excitable Boy by Warren Zevon. And so, yeah. and I thought of you. So can you tell us about your work with Warren? Well, his manager came to see me play with Michael Penn. Uh, we were playing the Wiltern in LA or somewhere and, uh, and they called and asked if I wanted to tour with Warren and, uh, and I, I said, sure, I'd love to. And then I met Warren and talked to him. And then, then we had a couple of rehearsals before the tour started and uh, Warren at one point asked me, he goes, you're not really familiar with my music, are you? I said, Warren, I ordered your album like a year or more before it came out when I was living in Buffalo, I went to the record store. I said, I want an album by this guy. And they looked through the sheet and they go, no, we don't see anything like that. And I said, put me down for the Warren Zevon album when it comes out, because I'd heard about it. Jackson Brown had talked about him. And so I was waiting just patiently for a year or more for that record to come out. He goes, Oh, I guess you do know my music. <laughs> And Warren was great. He was he was a class act, you know. He wasn't drinking. I, I opened for him once when he was drinking, and we played our set. Band I was in in Houston, and uh, and then they were looking for Warren, and they couldn't find him. And it took like an hour between the opening act and finally they found Warren sitting under a stairwell with a bottle of Stoli, and and they got him on stage, and he did a fine show. And so I mentioned that to him at one point. He said, yeah, I don't remember that. I said, you don't remember that gig? He said, I don't remember that tour. And he was completely serious. I saw, I saw on YouTube that you play some of his songs live in, in your set. Yeah, I started doing that um, a couple of years back. Uh, and actually, wait, Garf. Because I, I, I knew them, you know, I just, they, they were just ingrained into me. And somebody asked me if I ever play any Warren songs. And I said, no, but I certainly could. So then I started playing some when I would think of it. One of, one of those, um, I think it's like an outdoor show. Garf has like 2 million views on it. Really? A view, I think. I, it has a lot of views, like a lot, a lot. So, yeah. So, kudos to you. Well, thanks. Yeah. Well, those are great songs. He was, he was as good a songwriter as anybody. You know. Do you know if he was alive? I mean, well, well when did when when did he die? I because I don't know. Oh, I don't remember what year it was. I know he was fifty six. Um, that's that's probably been fifteen years, maybe something like that. Okay, so. so before the before the Kid Rock, before Kid Rock used were Werewolves of London, probably yeah. Yeah, I was I was reading the album credits and Mick Fleetwood plays drums on that song. Ah, and it's I'm, I'm so, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
just so great. I mean, um, yeah. There's, there's another favorite track of mine on that album, which is uh, "Nighttime at the Switching Yard." Yeah. It's it's almost like um. I mean, I'm going to draw a comparison here. It's like a like a cool in the gang song. Like yeah, uh, it's it a, has, that's a really unique track, you know. I remember him playing that when uh, when we opened for him when he was drunk. And you're almost thinking like, I don't know if he can pull this off, and it it comes yeah. off amazingly, you know. Yeah, I, I remember him just dancing to it. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was something. I, yeah, he was a really unique individual, you know, like one of a kind for all time. Him and Blaze Foley, no one ever liked them at all. Are you when you work when you're working with him? Are you required to you know play those some of the signature guitar like slide guitar riffs? You know, stay stay faithful to them or yeah, in, in, go, go your own? in my way, yeah, I, I was I was free to do whatever I wanted, but you know, you want to you know people know those songs they're used to certain things so you know you could you can work within that framework you know right i like i like that attitude i think to a degree pe people expect to hear it so you're going to want to give it to them right you know I, I one time i ran into one of the guitar players that lucinda hired when i quit and he said oh man i gotta play your guitar parts every night she makes me do it so you don't have. I absolve you of that. You don't have. You don't have to do that. Just make your own parts up. You know, just or, or base it on mine and make it your own. You know, right. like no people want to hear something like it, but you don't. You don't have to be a slave to that. Yeah, I think there's some signature. You know, you like you. You have some signature parts that are so integral to Lucinda's work that you know I could see playing them, yeah. but then going off other other areas. Right. Yeah, you got to start there. You know. I've, I've had to learn people's guitar parts, but they, they would gradually become my own, you know? All right. I think I, I, let's, let's, let's talk about your solo work and, and then I think we can, we can wrap it up. I got, I, I got a chance to listen to most of your, just peruse your solo albums. And yeah. do, is there one in particular you want to, would you like to tell us about, or I know you're going to, you know. <laughs> it's 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 always the newest one. Which <laughs> the newest just, one. Can I just open the door and, and have you tell us because it's it's going to be you know an introduction to some people and, and yeah. uh, well the the new the new album is called Kiss of the Diamondback and it was recorded during the pandemic. I just I had all this time and I had the songs and it was a little bit earlier than I would have put out an album ordinarily, but. Uh, uh, and the songs were all written before the pandemic, but uh, I, I sent the songs to a friend of mine to listen to, and and she got back to me and said, "That's weird. It's like half love songs and half pandemic songs. How'd you do that?" I said, "Well, they were all written before the pandemic." But and then I listened to them, and I went, "She's she's right." So they can yeah, interpret it, just, it, it in that in that context, right? It just happens that way sometimes, you know. Like artists are thinking about things, and and some sometimes it's it's pretty amazing how that works out. So, what are the? Is this is is this mostly a band record or an acoustic? Acoustic. It's album mostly or? mostly band stuff. Um, I just I'm. I think every record I make sounds better than the one before it. And, and so I'm really, really happy with the sounds of it and happy with the songs. Uh, I think, I think every record has better songs than the one before it. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure, but I, that's how I feel. And, uh, and I just, I, I think it's the best thing I've done. And you know, everybody says that, but I, but I believe it. Um, who, who played drums on, on your last record? Do you have a drummer? Well, or yeah, I use drums? I use Rick Richards on everything I can get him on, and because of the pandemic, he only ended up being on a couple songs on this record, and the rest of the stuff was stuff I did using drum sounds and and pounded them out myself, you know. And uh, yeah, but Rick is the master, and he's I knew Rick in Houston uh, back in the late seventies. He played a couple of gigs with Blaze, and he was like this skinny little rock drummer and who wasn't all that good and uh, and then i didn't see him for i don't know 10 or 
more years, 10, 15 years. And, and then Donald Lindley died. And I was just thinking, what am I going to do? Donald had moved mm-hmm. to Austin and, and I'd put the studio in. And that was, it was in order for me and Donald to be able to make records. And, and all of a sudden I ran into Rick again and he had become great. Nice. And, and become sort of Donald Lindley like, and uh, and I thought, oh, my prayers are answered, and uh, and so I, I've had him play on pretty much everything that I've done uh, in the last twenty years, and and any any projects if for for other artists, if there's if they need a drummer, I'd, I recommend Rick because he's just he he does it exactly like I want him to do it. I was listening to Impossible Blue. And uh, yeah. is that him on? Is that him on the record? Yeah, yeah. Great, um, very, very dark cymbal sounds, and um, you know, not you know, all, all that stuff gets thought about. You know, yeah. like, And and also, he's just a master. He knows. You know, there's a lot of drummers that think that you need to hit the cymbals as hard as the snare drum. You know, and and Donald is a master of like playing the cymbal really soft and wham on the snare drum really yeah. hard. He just, he's, he's got the perfect touch, you know, so. Does just, he come I, over to your house to record? Yeah. Yeah, he, we have a set of drums here that's kind of half his and half mine, and they've, they've stayed set up here for the last 20 years. Nice. So, Gurf, how can, how can listeners get in touch with you? GurfMorlix.com, G-U-R-F-M-O-R-L-I-X. Uh, there's a place to email me there. It's like the, the, the records are there you can you can get a hold of me through there and uh, and that's that's the only place my records are right now um some of the old, older ones are on amazon and downloadable but right now this new one which just came out a couple of weeks ago is uh, it's only available through me at this point what do you see La- last question and if there's anything we missed or did not talk about you you're welcome at this point but where where do, where do you see yourself in six months and in a year? <laughs> um, I'll I'll call you up again. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna go out and play anymore until it's safe for everyone. Right. Here, there's no way of knowing when that's gonna be. You know, they're they're playing baseball, and I just I I, I foresee that crumbling to a halt and. Uh, you know, 250,000 people went to Sturgis last weekend, and that's going to cause problems. And uh, and we're the only civilized country in the world that hasn't handled this thing well. And uh, so, and there's no way of knowing when there will be a vaccine and how effective it'll be. So, I'm I'm just going to stay home and and make records and try to put them out until it's safe and it will be at some point we'll rise from the ashes but uh, it's it's all bets are off yeah well Gurf I want to thank you for talking with us it was a great great conversation yeah Gurf Morlix thank you all right well folks we're going to leave it there for today I hope you enjoyed the show and please remember to subscribe You've been listening to Friends and Music with me, Brian Doherty. Today's intro and outro music were provided by me and my band Treat and Release, which is available on all streaming services. To learn more about me and my work, I can be found on all social media platforms or by visiting my website at briandohertydrummer.blogspot.com. Thanks again for listening and see you soon. Mind. Said there's no pride